Welcome to the 3D Parent Podcast. My name is Bevan Walters, your host and founder of The 3D Parent. I'm a certified parent coach and have spent the last decade living my calling in life, helping parents navigate the tough stuff like tantrums, sibling conflict, screen time overload, and managing the transition into the teenage years. My purpose is to provide you with the tools you need as a parent to lead with dignity, direction, and deep connection in your family relationships. My goal in creating the 3D Parent Podcast is to inform, empower, and increase confidence in parents so they can trust their instincts and make the best decisions possible for their families. For these reasons, I've rated this podcast FPEO for parents' ears only. Parenting is challenging, but you don't have to do it alone. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the 3D Parent Podcast. Today on this episode, we're going to be talking about sustainable, healthy sleep habits for kids of all ages. And I'm going to be joined today by a guest and fellow parent coach, Sarah Moore. So before I welcome her to the show, I'm going to go ahead and read you a bit about her background. Sarah R. Moore is the founder of Dandelion Seeds Positive Parenting. As a certified gentle parenting coach, she is a regular contributor to international parenting magazines, as well as frequent guest on podcasts and parenting summits. She offers a popular series of mini courses, webinars, and expert interviews. She's currently writing two books that will be released this year. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I am so glad you're here also, especially talking about the topic of sleep and healthy sleep habits. And before we jump in on that topic, I want to go ahead and invite you to share a bit about yourself so the listeners can get to know you. But I wanted to start off first by reading this quote that I love off of your website, which I felt was so relatable. And it says, Although I'm a published writer and whatnot, I'm also a regular everyday mama who sometimes gets tired and wonders why I put my keys in the refrigerator. I'm real like that. And I think that is such an awesome quote. And I love that you just put that out there. Very relatable. Um, but tell us a bit about you and your family and um, so we can get to know you better. Sure, absolutely. Well, I'm very much that real person you just described. I am perfectly happy and willing to share the mistakes I've made so that others can learn from them, not only in the everyday, yes, the keys are in the fridge again kind of thing, but also in the grand scheme of parenting. I know that none of us is perfect and embracing that imperfection, I think is where so much peace can come in our parenting journey. And it really sets up sets us up for success when we try to work on things that we want to work on as a family. So as for me, I spent almost 20 years in corporate America before I became a mama. I was a so-called older mama. Gotta love that terminology, right? 
Um, no, I don't love that, but I can also relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If your listeners could see my wink coming through the microphone here, but yes, I was nearly 40 by the time I had my daughter. I had a, um, a late term pregnancy loss before her that I am perfectly comfortable mentioning up front because a lot of times people think this is a taboo subject and I don't want it to be taboo for people like it felt for me when it happened to me. So by the time I finally did have my daughter, I was all the more committed to, I really want to nurture her and raise her in ways that feel authentic to me. This is my journey and my journey alone, perhaps because of my age and my life stage and a whole lot of other things that are going on. This may be my one shot at parenting. So I'm going to make sure I get it as right as I possibly can for her. So she was really my motivation for Leaving corporate America, we were in kind of an unusual situation in our life stage as it was, so it was good timing to make some big life-changing decisions at the moment and embrace motherhood for all of its joys and chaos. And early on in my gentle parenting journey, I didn't necessarily realize that I was a gentle parent. However, I started getting a lot of advice early on. You know, we all love that unsolicited advice. And here's my wink coming through the, you know, the video and the audio again here, but um, started receiving a lot of advice that really didn't resonate with me. So I started researching, I started studying. And next thing you know, I realized if I'm being fed bad information, including from people like my pediatrician at the time, and other people who I would otherwise be inclined to trust, and I now have science to the contrary, I want to empower other parents with this so they don't feel stuck doing something that doesn't feel right intuitively to them just because they feel like it's the only option. So that was really the impetus for my positive parenting journey. I happen to have master's degree. I happen to have graduated from improvisational comedy school, happened to have all this corporate experience. And I didn't realize how much all of those things, especially the comedy piece, would play into parenting in real life every single day. That is so awesome. And I love that unique background. It's it's funny, I didn't know this before we started recording, but I also have a background in performing arts and acting and singing. And oftentimes I the parent the parents I work with, I talk about how, you know, having some acting skills and some access to turning things into humor um, can benefit in terms of finding ways to kind of turn around difficult situations with your kids. But that's really um wonderful in terms of sharing your background and the journey that you've been on and how you from the get-go really had a great attunement to your own intuition. And even before you knew there was a name for it or a label or it was a style of parenting and that kind of getting that contrary um, response and advice from people just further committed you to parent the way you have been naturally and then helping others to get there as well. And I also really can connect because it's something that's a huge mission for me when I'm working with my um, clients to really turn back on that parenting intuition that for whatever, well, there's lots of reasons. <laughs> we probably could name them all. But for so many parents, that has become harder and harder for them to actually trust their natural instincts and do what they feel in their gut is what's right and best for them and their child. And they get confused and cluttered by all this different information that's not resonating that they feel they should be doing for some reason. And I think it's really, really helpful 
to help guide parents back to listening to their gut and their intuition, which is a great segue into the topic that we are going to be talking about today, because there's a lot about sleep and encouraging healthy sleep habits in our kids that sometimes really uh, challenges our voice, our inner voice, our intuition as parents. And then there's all the different versions and all the different ways in which um, people suggest that you help your child learn to sleep in a way that is healthy. And then there's approaches that some people think, oh, this is the only way that other people think, oh, that's actually really detrimental to your child's development and emotional well-being. And oh my gosh, there's so much controversy and chaos around the topic of sleep and how to best approach sleep with our children. And that's why I thought, you know, this is such a complicated and nuanced conversation. I would love to have somebody on my podcast to talk through a specific approach that is really focused on protecting a child's emotional well-being when it comes to healthy sleep habits. So let's just jump right in and maybe jump right into the controversy and talk first about sleep training and specifically cry it out styles of sleep training. And I want to know from your perspective, Sarah, is there scientific research that supports using this method for younger and older kids? I am so glad you asked, and you're absolutely right. This is the deep end of the pool. This is one of those topics that can be so polarizing for parents, because frankly, many of us were raised to believe that a child will never learn to sleep unless we sleep train them with cried out methods. So a couple of fallacies around that that I want to address. And first of all, for anybody who's listening to this who has already sleep trained their child, please know that my intent is not to shame, not to make you feel you know, uncomfortable with the decisions you've made. There are some scenarios where sleep training in this fashion may be an appropriate course of action, especially if a parent is you know, unsafe because they are so sleep deprived that they can't drive well during the day. They can't, you know, function above and beyond what would be considered normal ways. So I'm never going to advocate cry it out. And I'll be very, very forthcoming about that. But I also want to say, I do know that there are some scenarios where Let's be real, I, I don't pretend to live in anybody else's home, home but my own, and I want to acknowledge you who are listening out there and maybe in one of those scenarios. That said, to address your question directly, one fallacy that exists out there is that sleep training through cry it out is universal, and along with it, that's fallacy part two, that that's the only way that we will get children to sleep. Well. The first part of that that's false is that sleep training with cry it out is necessary. Much of the world does not use any form of cry it out when it comes to helping their babies and young children learn to sleep. In many cultures, and I'm not talking obscure faraway cultures that look nothing like our own. I'm talking places like Denmark. I'm talking places that statistically raise some of the happiest people in the world. And they have a very, very different approach to parenting from the day that child is born. 
And if we can look at countries like that and say, they don't do cry it out, but I trust that children there do sleep and parents sleep too. We know that that's a biological necessity. There must be some other option. So we have to think about that reality when we think that sleep training is the only option. The other fallacy that I want to address is that our babies and young children will never learn to sleep if we don't use this method. Well, let's reframe that a little bit. We know that biologically, even in utero, babies sleep. We know that the first thing the baby does after being born is usually to do the crawl up to the mother's breast and attempt to nurse if that's an option that's available to them. And after they do, the next thing that happens is they go to sleep. Babies are born knowing how to sleep. So our job is to nurture that natural, innate, biological necessity that already exists. And we don't have to buy into the philosophy that this is the only way it's ever going to happen. Now, scientifically, to address that part of your question, there is definitely controversy over the subject. There are plenty of pediatricians, my own first pediatrician included, who will say babies turn out fine. There is nothing wrong long-term. You're not doing any damage. In fact, sleep deprivation is probably a bigger problem that you need to worry about. Well, Interestingly, there is also lots of evidence to the contrary. We know, for example, that when a baby or young child, or older child for that matter, is left to cry, the C and cry it out is for cry. Anytime somebody cries, their cortisol levels go up, their stress levels go up. And if they consistently have higher stress levels, higher cortisol levels, that is linked to emotional and behavior problems that we need to make sure that we are not the cause of growing in these little humans' bodies. Another scientific point to address is the concept of secure attachment. Attachment is a really, really big buzzword these days. And we know that the type of attachment we want to have with our children is that secure attachment versus insecure, avoidant, and the other attachment styles that are out there. Well, where does secure attachment come from? Secure attachment comes from a child of any age who is responded to with warmth, empathy, and connection when they are sick, when they are hurt, or when they are upset. So when we look at cry it out, that falls into the upset category. And if we are not responding to that child when they are upset, babies are forming millions upon millions of new neural pathways every single moment of their first year of life. And from a brain science perspective, we want these neural pathways to give the child the message, when I'm upset, somebody comes for me. That's how I feel secure in this world. That's how I develop a secure attachment with my caregiver. That's how I will ultimately learn to grow up being able to take care of myself because I feel like the world took care of me first. 
by design, babies are 100% dependent upon us. So if we can show them in those early days, months, and years that we're going to show up for them at times that are both convenient for us and inconvenient for us, we help them develop the brain wiring that is conducive to secure attachment. And that is a bond that will be the foundation for all of their future relationships in life. Now, before anybody says, hey, hold on, that's not the only way to have secure attachment. That's true. They're absolutely right. There are other ways to foster and nurture secure attachment. But I have never seen scientifically or otherwise a child who can say, I understand mommy, daddy, caregiver, whoever you are, that it's three o'clock in the morning. So my needs aren't as important right now as they are at three o'clock in the afternoon when it's more convenient for you. Yes, it's hard. And I see that and I understand that and I empathize fully. There is science on both sides, but because there is science on both sides, I tend to err on the side of let's show up for our kids, no matter the age, no matter the hour, no matter the reason. And we are not grooming them for a lifetime of incredible codependence, we are actually setting them up for great independence because they are secure in every foundational relationship they've ever had, especially those they've had at the very beginning of their lives. That's really helpful information and really good in terms of providing um, research as well as kind of thinking about things outside of just sleep but the most important foundation, which I talk about constantly on my podcast about that secure attachment and in terms of what cried out methods could potentially do to cause um, insecurity within that attachment, um, particularly if it is repeatedly used. And I think that's kind of the next thing I wanted to kind of um, ask you is, you know, a lot of times we think about cry it out as being something that parents maybe just need to do once or during one phase, or maybe it's just, okay, my baby is six months old and my pediatrician have suggested, or my parent or my sister or friend has said, oh, you know, your baby can totally um, be sleep trained now. They don't need to get up all night long. They don't need to have those middle of the night feeds. And if you don't do it now, they're never going to learn sleep. You've already debunked that fallacy. But um, the idea being that, you know, it's just this one thing that you'll do once you're done with sleep training, cry it out. It's uh, it's done. It's fixed. And your child's not always going to sleep, only to find maybe another period where their child is waking up and crying in the middle of the night. And then parents are maybe returning to that. So anything in terms of, you know, a baby and cry it out methods with a very young infant. And then going through the years when it might be returned to as a strategy and even going into maybe like toddler years and beyond when a child maybe is not even a crib anymore. And what um, parents sometimes resort to thinking, of course, that they're trying to help their child learn to sleep on their own or not need them. Sometimes I, I, I work with parents who have talked about locking their doors or putting on baby proofing mechanisms on doors so um, their children, they can continue to utilize this uh, sleep training cried out method, even once um, children are able to 
get out of bed and, and attempt to um, go to the parents, but are not, they don't have access due to things like locked doors. So any other things kind of add to this conversation, Sarah, in terms of, you know, repeated use of cry it out methods through those kind of early childhood years? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought this up because that is yet another fallacy. A lot of times people think you do this one time, it lasts for a couple of nights, and then you're good forever and ever. And we know scientifically and biologically that nothing can be further from the truth. We all still wake up at night. I'm 46 years old, and I still wake up usually a couple of times a night. And because I'm an adult and because I know how to regulate my nervous system, I can roll over and fall back asleep. But if I were a young child, let's say I am now six months old or 18 months old and going through, I choose those ages specifically because they are often linked to separation anxiety. I'm going through separation anxiety for the first time and I wake up at night and go, wow, where's my big person? You know, this is terrifying for me. I need to check in and make sure we're still good here. Guess what? The thing you did at four months isn't going to matter. Let's move forward to the preschool years. Preschool is another time when frequent wake-ups are normal. And I say that slowly because I really want it to sink in for people. Roughly 50 to 70% of preschoolers still wake up at night on a regular basis and need a parent's assistance to help them fall back to sleep. That's biologically and developmentally normal. Now let's bring in all of the other things that can happen. Let's talk about teething. Let's talk about the onset of nightmares that tends to happen in the early school age years. Let's talk about developmental milestones where maybe the child is working on, you know, we sometimes think of them as the wonder weeks when our baby is little or any of these other milestones, you know, learning to sit up, learning to walk, learning to talk, learning to read. And I say read because it's the older child who's doing that. These are things that require incredible amounts of brain activity. And just like me in my 40s, if I have a great big meeting the next day, something that I'm trying to finish preparing and I want to look good in front of others because I've been working on this thing, I'm not going to sleep so well. It is natural to wake up. So supporting our children when they do is much more realistic and helps ground them in, okay, we're still okay here, we've still got this, it's a phase, it's temporary, and the more support I provide now, the less likely my child is gonna need to wake up every night hereafter feeling abandoned or feeling alone and not feeling like they have that connection that they need to fall back asleep in a peaceful, comfortable, emotionally secure way. And I will also share, if I may, I, yeah, I go ahead. one sort of interesting tidbit about me, if you will. I know that most people, statistically speaking, do not have memories before the age of three. I actually do. My brain works differently. I happen to know that my parents did sleep train me when I was about 18 months old, and I remember parts of it. And I can say from firsthand experience that for me, it was a traumatizing experience that still has carryover to this day. I want to be careful when I say that because I don't want to shame anybody who's doing it. 
But when people bring in the notion of don't worry, they will never remember, that's not necessarily true because you will get anomalies like me who say, oh, no, I remember that. And it's caused some problems. But also, like you shared, um, there's what you remember and then there's what you don't remember, yet you're still impacted by. Because, like you said, those pathways that are being formed that are not conscious and so they can impact. So when we talk about longer term impact of using these methods, um, what kinds of common problems or, you know, kind of like um, you, you mentioned it being traumatic. So what kinds of ongoing problems are frequently linked to methods that are not responsive and where the child is left alone to cry or being fearful um, without being responded to by their parents and caregivers? Two big ones come to mind, the first of which is naturally separation anxiety. We sometimes think that this is purely a child-driven feeling, a child-driven problem. And while that is true to a degree developmentally, the parent can do things or not do things that exacerbate or calm that sense of separation anxiety. So if the child is consistently feeling like, eh, I get super duper upset, but nobody comes for me, this doesn't feel safe for me emotionally, that child is going to have more trouble with separation anxiety that you may then see, let's say, for example, at a daycare drop-off or a preschool drop-off or elementary school, depending on the child's age. That's a child who may very well say, I don't know when I can trust you to show up for me and when I can't. And that inconsistency causes an incredible amount of cognitive dissonance for me because I know that sometimes you've got the coziest lap in the world and we'll, you know, snuggle up and read a story and life is grand. But other times, if you're not showing up for me when I need you, I'm going to react emotionally as if that lap is never there because I don't know when I can count on it. The other thing that I touched on earlier, I will use to answer this question also, when we think about secure attachment and setting the stage for the relationships that the child will have throughout their entire life, not just our parenting relationship, but the relationship they choose with their friends, with their future partner, whoever it may be, what kind of person do they choose? Do they choose somebody who is consistently emotionally available to them or do we find hurting people choosing hurting people who can't really show up for each other in healthy ways over the long term? And a lot of that can absolutely scientifically be linked back to whether the child had a secure attachment in their youth. And as I mentioned earlier, where does that come from? It's those three things, when a child is sick, when a child is hurt, when a child is upset, can they come to their parents and feel that they are being adequately soothed and co-regulated with to make it past whatever they're struggling with in that time? That's really helpful and um, really worth keeping in mind that it's um, the impacts to the way we are responding to our children. It's not just this you know, moment in time that it could actually have more long lasting uh, effects that are important to keep in mind when making decisions related to things like sleep. So, okay, 
if we are brand new to parenting or we've tried cried out methods and are like, yep, that's not working for me, but I don't know what to do. And what do we do? What are our options? Are there gentler methods of sleep training or another way to approach and support our kids in developing healthy sleep habits from birth and beyond? Absolutely. Yeah. And so much of it is what we bring into it as the adult. As I mentioned, kids are born knowing how to sleep. Our job as the adult is to create an environment where sleep feels like a safe and happy place. So if we go into this sleep concept with our child, with this anxiety in our guts, with this weight on our shoulders of, oh, I need to train them to do this thing that they don't know how to do. Well, let's check in on that. They actually do know how to do it. Our job is to provide the environment. So one part of that environment that's really important to highlight and that would get rid of so many of the problems if people followed this advice, the American Association of Pediatrics, nationally known organization, fully respected, no matter your parenting philosophy, people look at the AAP as, okay, they're the go-to because they've got their science and research pretty well down pat in most areas. They recommend room sharing for the first year of a baby's life. So many parents have come to believe that the child should be in their own room by a couple of months old, if not sooner, and they should revel in this independent space that they have. Well, we know that we are for their safety, supposed to be in the same room with them when we are sleeping. It decreases SIDS, it increases breastfeeding success rates. There are all sorts of reasons to room share with the young child. So that's the first point that I want people to remember. The closer you are to your child, the less stressful it's going to be for the child because they're not worried that you're leaving. They're not worried that they can't access you. Plus, win-win, bonus for you, especially if you are getting up for nighttime feedings, you're not trudging halfway across the house. And you know what? If I were trudging halfway across the house five times a night, I'd get resentful too. But if I can reach over and grab my child from a safe sleeping space and bring that child to me and do whatever soothing or nursing I need to do, then lay the child back down without even having to put on my slippers, guess what? We all get more sleep. We're all happier. Now carry that forward as the child gets older. What can we do to keep sleep a nice and happy, emotionally safe place for our children? Are door locks going to accomplish that? No, absolutely not. Is a philosophy of, yeah, you can come and get me when you need to and I'll show up for you, but let's make sure that you get plenty of fresh air during the day, plenty of exercise, plenty of nutritious foods. Let's do everything we can to prepare your body during the day so that nighttime gets easier. Well, that's hugely helpful. If we can, when it's time to say goodnight, not create innately high anxiety scenarios. Okay, I'm reading you one story and then I'm out and I close the door and you can't have anything more. That's it. Eh, well, that's stressful for the child and for us. But if we have soft lights, a cozy sleeping space, you know, snuggles, I almost call it snuggles because that's what my daughter calls it, uh, snuggles, 
warm bath if the child likes bath before bedtime? What are the things that are truly relaxing? And it's really helpful to put ourselves in our children's shoes. You know, if my husband saw that I was going to bed by 